Over the past 50 years, nuclear power has reduced CO2 emissions by over 60 gigatons. That's a huge, huge number. Hello and welcome to another edition of Greening the News, the podcast of IEMA, the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. We are the professional body for anyone involved in the environment and sustainability sectors. This week we're talking about nuclear power and I'm delighted to say we're talking to uh, one of our fellows and assessors, Rob Little, who's Group Sustainability Manager at Urenco Group. Um, Rob, thanks ever so much for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, Now, the first question I've got to ask is, nuclear power can be seen as a bit of a controversial subject within the environment and sustainability movements. There are people who say, you know, we should be going towards uh, zero carbon without the support of nuclear. There are many others who say, look, we can't get there without nuclear power. How how would you answer that that question? We've seen with world events going on, um, that there's this energy trilemma at the moment of mm. security of supply, price, of course, and let's not forget carbon. So when you put the three together, then there is this this trilemma, and you've got nuclear that can provide this really stable, consistent base load of of low carbon energy, and 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 it's all about complementing renewables as well. So. It, we're not talking about nuclear as the only solution here. We, we, we should look at this um, in terms of a patchwork, I suppose, a diverse patchwork of, of energy supply. And, and nuclear provides that that really stable base load when, when re- renewables can't always provide what you need. So it's kind of all the tools in the box. We need all the tools in the box for everything. Yes, that, that's, that's right. Uh, and if you just look at some of the statistics, I mean, the International Energy Agency uh, published something very recently which said that over the past 50 years, uh, nuclear power has reduced CO2 emissions by over 60 gigatons. So that's 60 gigatons of avoided CO2 emissions, and that's a huge, mm. huge number. So if you put that into context, it is cre- incredibly important, and it's all about that complementary uh, system to, to renewables. So um, I'd like to maybe come back to the points that you were talking about um, in terms of the current energy crisis, because, of course, that's the front and centre of everybody's mind. But I want to first, if I could ask you a little bit about your career and how you started. What was your career trajectory? And uh, did you think you were going to end up working in nuclear power when you started off? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. So um, slightly um, unconventional. So I did a bachelor's degree in rural estate management. So as part of oh. that, I did um yeah a bit different. So I, I did a, it's interesting. <laughs> so I did a I did a placement year, um, and within that year, I did a lot of forestry, environmental protection, wildlife, agriculture, um, and I really enjoyed that. And that just made me realise that I wanted to take environment further. So I did a, a master's uh, degree in restoration ecology, and and yeah, from there I got a role in. Uh, environmental management, working in the civil engineering, oil and gas, and then nuclear sector, and predominantly looking at environmental management systems, compliance type roles. And then the last couple of years, I then switched to this group sustainability role, which which I'm loving. It's, it's brilliant. So th- there was a bit of a pivot there from maybe land managing to, to managing a specific part of the, the energy industry. How, how did that work in terms of your thinking and your career progression? So, so the land management aspect, it was quite a wide um, uh, area of responsibility. So it was mm. looking after large rural estates, 
So, okay. so there was fun, lots of financial tax planning, inheritance tax. So, so I suppose some of the, those early skills and appreciation led me to, to have that system thinking. So mm -hmm. it's about now understanding that um, to, to meet the energy uh, demands of future from a low carbon perspective, and from a from a security perspective, security supply and price perspective, then you've got to to have this um, system approach and not thinking that one solution is 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 the only solution. So this patchwork that I've talked about, this diverse supply. Yeah, that that's that's really interesting because the ability of big landowners to think 25, 50, 75 years ahead when a lot of government policy is by its very nature, you know, running at a five-year cycle or a 10-year cycle. I mean, with nuclear, you're talking about 50, 100, maybe even longer that in, and than that in terms of your time frame. I, I, th I think you're right. And I think we do lose some, um, some important progress because of this short-term thinking. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right with um, when we're planning for energy security in particular, uh, and and again, the carbon intensity of, of our energy supply and decarbonizing hard to decarbonize industries like the foundation industries, you've got to have that long term approach. So building um, a large nuclear power station like Hinkley C and Sizewell that's been discussed in the news recently, um, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, we're talking mm -hmm. about multi year um, builds and then operations into the decades. So. It goes back to my point about having this stable base load that that's consistently there, and yeah. and that then allows you to 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 plan your investment in renewables around that stable base load to plug the gaps and make sure you've got that that um, that diverse supply that we need. And do you think that's something that um, that governments are now more aware of than they were perhaps even a couple of years ago? Now that we have this. Uh, you know, this real energy crisis, no matter where you are in, in the world, that people are beginning to realise the benefits of long-term planning. I 100% agree with that. And if you just look at, um, at what's what's happening uh, with some of the European countries that are over-reliant on gas, so Germany, for example, mm. then they're, they're struggling to, to work out what to do to, to, to plug the gap at the moment. And, and we've seen that they've turned to coal. Um, they are starting to consider whether they, they should... Um, reconsider their stance on nuclear. Um, you know, over in Canada, for example, they've got strong federal targets on um, reducing the carbon intensity of their grid, and they're doing that by by investing in in nuclear. But it's this next generation of nuclear reactors that that is of real interest. So we've got, if you can think about the two different types in general, we've got the large scale builds such as Hinkley and Sizewell. Um, in the UK, but we've also got the next generation, which are small and advanced modular reactors. So these are effectively small. Well, they're a lot smaller than the, than the large conventional builds. They're easier to build. They're smaller. They're modular, so they can be bolted together um, more easily than these large concrete structures. And they can also be deployed to remote communities. So, for example, mining communities that traditionally rely on diesel and hydrocarbon based fuels you you can you can deploy um, one of these small modular reactors out in these communities and it can provide mm. again this 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 source of low carbon energy and 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 on top of that also these reactors provide um, excess heat so you can use that heat to to gent the the foundation industries for example need to decarbonize because renewables can't necessarily provide that same level of heat that's needed for 
for some of these industries and industrial processes. Uh, that's really interesting. And I'd like perhaps to pick up on some of those points in a minute. But maybe if I could bring you back to the the, the day job, group sustainability manager. So, what what does that actually mean? When you know, what's a typical day for you? Yeah, typical day is a busy day, a very busy day. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I can um, describe my role in two main aspects. The first is really just developing and maintaining the group sustainability strategy. So making sure that we have this credible strategy that that evolves to align with um, you know, sustainability trends, global mega trends, making sure that the strategy is material for our business. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, the biggest aspect of my role. And then, and then secondary to that, it would be liaising with internal teams to make sure that sustainability is uh, further integrated into their business processes, their thought processes, um, and then also external stakeholders. I spend a lot of time talking to to investors, um, banks, insurance companies, customers, of course, just to engage on sustainability and make sure that that their needs are are, are met as well through through our strategy. And I mean, I can only imagine, begin to imagine how complex those processes and programs need to be i mean how many partners are you talking with about uh that mapping that sustainability journey on the whole so if you take our net zero program as an example of um something that is cross-cutting across departments internally and externally as well uh, we've got ambitions to be net zero by 2040 and we've set near term um 2030 uh, scope one, two, and three reduction targets that will be um, verified by the science-based target initiative. So to pull all that together, it takes a lot of work to integrate with the finance teams. So if you take finance as as an example, current financial investment decisions are are based purely on return on investment and payback period. But for sustainability-related investments, you often don't get those paybacks. and the returns are very, very minimal, very modest. So it's liaising, as a good example, is liaising with the finance team to see if we can come up with a different um, methodology to assess these the criteria on sustainability investments to make sure we get them over the line. And do you think partly that's because you don't know what you don't know? Because, um, I mean, obviously, with a lot of financial models, you're using the past to predict the future, but for sustainability, I mean, increasingly we're seeing from the evidence that it becomes very difficult to to, to guarantee what will happen even in 10 or 15 years time, let alone 20 or 25. Yeah, yes, you're right. And that, that's where I think some of the frameworks, if you take CCFD, for example, which is all about assessing the risks of climate change on, on your business, as well as your business's impact on the climate, That's a really good example, a really good framework of where you can do scenario um, planning and scenario analysis of the effects of climate. So, for example, we've got a facility out in New Mexico in in North America, and that's in a water stressed area. And it could be that in a much more volatile world with with much more warming, that, that access to fresh water becomes a lot harder. So that's then impacting some of our operational and strategic decision making. And I think companies across the land and globally will have these these same thought processes. Um, but of course, some will be more mature in their in their thoughts than others. 
And um, TCFD, I think I'm right in saying, stands for Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, doesn't it? That's correct, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, now, um, we have had other guests um, who have been on the programme and actually mentioned uh, Urenco in terms of the, your ability to communicate with uh, the people you work with, your partners, uh, other people in the supply chain and other interested parties. Do, do you spend a lot of time thinking about the messages you want to give and, and how you deliver those? Yes, yes, we do. And I think in previous years, the nuclear sector has been very good at just getting on with what it does um, and it hasn't really put its head above the parapet, maybe because of some of the detractors. Um, but I think because of what happened in Fukushima in Japan, um, that those terrible events, um, there was a global downturn in, in, in nuclear output and demand. So the nuclear sector had to then become more ambitious and uh, more vocal about the benefits and, and what it was trying to, to achieve. And then I think since then we've had the Paris agreements where global imperatives about reaching net zero and reducing climate change. Um, I think though it's really stimulated those conversations about do we need, what is the role of nuclear? Do we need this stable baseload? And I think, I think that the, the real um, appreciation is, is yes, we do, but it's again, how what I've mentioned before, it complements uh, the role of renewables and other technologies as well. So, Dealing with with stakeholders is an important part of of um, telling the story, the role of, that nuclear has to play. Interestingly, as you said that, I was thinking about um, you know, there are lots of industries now that um, that are in a similar position that uh, you know they've just been doing their thing for well pretty much since the Second World War in some cases um, and just getting on with it and delivering and they're now finding that pretty much every sector is under increased scrutiny for all sorts of reasons um, and having to be far more proactive even if it feels quite uncomfortable far more proactive in, in telling people what they do and why it's so important. Yeah yes and I, th I think also just moving to um to disclose under various sustainability uh, disclosure frameworks. I think that's that's really helped because I'm part of various working groups. You know, the World Nuclear Association, WNA, has working groups on on sustainability reporting. And it's good to see that, that the majority of the big players in terms of the nuclear sector are, are involved in that working group. And it's talking about um, how we can uh, become more transparent and comply with these um, these disclosure requirements. So it's about it's about telling the story um but having saying it in a credible way because it's it's not about greenwashing or spinning things it's about the substance behind it and i think because nuclear is such a regulated industry um because my experience of environmental management um in the nuclear sector in the uk for example the, the level of regulation by the office for nuclear regulation the onr the environment agency you know the ea that it, it, it's it's scrutinized so much and that, that scrutiny happens in any other um, uh, regulated country as well. So yeah. it's, it's about becoming transparent and, and the, the, yeah, it, you just need to, um, to put your information out there and be, and be questioned on it as well. That, that's fine. And, and presumably, I mean, as you said, like with every other regulated industry, you have plans for, for everything, including if things go wrong as well as going right. I mean, how, how easy is it to be transparent with 
say, members of the public or local communities who are concerned because, as you said, you know, when, when something goes wrong in the nuclear industry, it's headlined news around the world for, for weeks sometimes. Yes, I think um, the, the level of um, safety assessment, so there's, a thing, there's, a, there's an assessment process called a safety case, nuclear safety case, and an environmental um, safety case as well. And these are extremely rigorous. They're all nuclear um, nuclear sites, uh, mm. facilities, waste storage facilities, temporary repositories. That they all have to have these. And in some instances, they they project decades, hundreds, thousands of years in the future because of the long lifetimes involved with with radioactive materials. So it just I just like to give you that that sense of of confidence that. All these plans are, are, they're very weighty, they're very comprehensive, they are assessed by the regulators. And ultimately, the regulators have that power to, to, to shut a facility down or to request improvements, demand improvements. So that, that level of scrutiny, as I mentioned, it's not just in the UK, it's, it's in all the, the countries that nuclear is operated. Mm. Um, it, interesting that you mentioned nuclear waste, because obviously this is one of the things that um, sometimes, I mean, particularly... Um, in Sellafield, I remember when I was at the BBC talking to community groups who were concerned about where the waste was going to go and how it was going to be treated. Um, um, is there anything that the industry can do or are there you know, other technologies that are being looked at to, to, to lessen the, the footprint, if you like, or you know, support in a, in a way the circular economy or have things improved a lot anyway in the last 20 or 30 years? I think things have improved, and I think mm. what 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 ha- what I've noticed is the level of collaboration throughout the nuclear fuel cycle as well. So, just as I mentioned about nuclear having to become more transparent and put its head above the parapet because of world events, that's also um, that's also kicked off a level of engagement throughout the sector as well. So, there is there are these working groups on looking at waste and and as you mentioned, circular principles because nuclear does have a lot of opportunities to, to 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 reuse some of the the waste and the materials and reprocess to, to keep going so there are there are lots of opportunities and there are new technologies being um, assessed all the time and I mean it's not so much of a waste conversation but if you look at the nuclear fusion technologies that are being assessed at the moment you know that's mm. incredibly exciting and the projection is you know the the, the amount of radioactive waste that and emissions that 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 will generate are are far far lower than than existing um, power stations. So the technology is is um, evolving all the time. It is one of those areas though where uh, there's a few people who know a huge amount of stuff and a lot of people who don't know very much stuff at all because we're all you know, members of the public. Um, and yet, you know, the the, uh, the television. Films, you know, always if there's a disaster, it's often something to do with nuclear. You know, in the story where the spy comes to save the world or whatever. I mean, do you have a bit of an internal eye roll where you see another piece of drama talking in a completely unscientific way about nuclear, and yet knowing that that's going to add to the the kind of heuristic sum of what people think they know about nuclear power? (laughs) Yes, I mean, it it makes a great story, doesn't it? I think um, whenever whenever watch something um, and there's a, as you say there's a nuclear story that comes on, and my wife will typically roll her eyes, but I'll say it doesn't <laughs> happen like that. It's just not like that. 
<laughs> there's no yeah. way that could happen so so yeah you're right it's 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 a great way of of um of because the consequence let's not forget the consequences if it does go wrong it, it can go seriously wrong um but the 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 so the the hazard is high but the risk is extremely small so um, so what do people what do, what do they get wrong it's just things that just you would have processes against or you would never that would never actually happen in real life yes i mean um it, it, the level of training and the level of as i said regulatory um uh, investigation and and scrutiny over what goes on and all the all the management systems um they're, they're, they're so they're so rigorous um that, yeah it's just it just wouldn't have, it's just dramatizing for the sake of um, films yeah Rob, please do stay with us because just a reminder, of course, to our listeners that thanks very much for all your feedback. It's been great. And in fact, we're talking to Rob as a result of the feedback and comments that we've had from the listenership because this was a subject that we're really interested in. Do remember, you can always get in touch with us uh, at podcast at IEMA.net or on social media, Twitter, we are at IEMA.net and on LinkedIn as well at IEMA. So um, please do get in touch with any other ideas you have for, uh, for podcasts, because I'm sure they're going to be as interesting as it is talking to Rob. Rob, I'll come back to you in a moment, but I wondered if we could just bring in Tom Pashby now. Tom, of course, is our digital journalist. You've been listening with uh, great interest, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. It, it was good to hear mention about energy bills and diversification of the energy mix, because obviously these are big conversations happening at the moment. Yeah, I mean, and Tom has been scouting the the stories of interest and topicality for us this month. As you said, energy, energy bills, um, we'll talk a little bit to, to Rob about that before we finish, but obviously dominating the news at the moment with the impending cost of living crisis. I mean, how do you think this story is being covered from an environmental point of view? That's actually a really interesting question, which I've been thinking about as well, because that angle has often been missed. It's been largely and rightly, I suppose, focused on the impact of the cost of living because mm. so many people will be forced into positions where they literally just can't pay the bills. And also I've seen loads of local news stories about small businesses who have to simply close and with no plans come back because we obviously don't know if bills will fall down enough to be able to afford them. So yeah, environment has been quite missing um but i'm mm. sure that it will start to emerge a bit more once the industry settles into this new reality mm. yeah an interesting point and as you said of course when people's livelihoods and the question about heating or eating are on the line it's perhaps understandable that the environmental impact is maybe front front and center although obviously there will be a, a huge and potentially an opportunity for people to think about low carbon energy supplies because they'll be more resilient than the current kind of quite fragile geopolitical system we've got at the moment yeah but that's definitely a really important conversation about what individuals can do in terms of installing solar and batteries and heat pumps and all that kind of thing mm. but a big part of that conversation that often gets missed is people who live in the private rented sector who don't have the power to make those kind of decisions. So I think that there needs yeah. to be more support for those kind of groups. Yeah, and lagging, good old lagging, boring old lagging. I, you know, it, it's not, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a sexy photo opportunity for uh, a decision maker, but it's super important as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, of course, the other thing that we've seen a lot about on the headlines is the sewage system and. Water companies, uh, particularly discharging into coastal areas in the middle of the summer holidays. 
Yeah, so I, I'm fairly confident that this is all related to the fact that we've had a very hot summer, which means that mm. it's a lot harder for rainwater to just soak into the land like normal. So a lot of water companies have had to do, um, well, they call them pollution incidents, don't they, where they discharge untreated sewage into beaches around the UK. So I read that this was as of yesterday, that there were still pollution warnings in place on more than 20 beaches and swimming spots. And there have been warnings over the last two weeks at more than 40 locations, which means that there's been a pollution incident within the previous 48 hours, I think. And there was a massive incident where a pipe burst near Swindon, which killed all the fish along a three-mile stretch of a Thames tributary called the River Ray, which is obviously really concerning. And I'm sure that this kind of thing is going to be played out across the UK with all these discharges. And a greater interest in it now, as you said, people at the coast bathing, a great interest in wild water swimming, an interest in uh, getting out into the countryside, you know, if you were lucky enough to be able to do so during the pandemic as well, of course. Yeah, it's, it is one of those things that people have definitely been appreciating more since the pandemic, one of those kind of outdoor pursuits, which often is free because you don't need to pay to turn up to a beach. But it's one of those areas where that can just be taken away really easily if these kind of incidents happen, which is obviously a massive shame. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, talking of oceans, looking across the Atlantic Ocean to Washington, D.C. and the Biden administration and some quite encouraging news, according to a lot of commentators, uh, in terms of financing for climate change. Yeah, so it's the the news that the Inflation Reduction Act passed, um, which Joe Biden supported, and it involves $700 billion of investment um, to fight climate change and healthcare costs and to raise taxes on the rich. Obviously, the, the aim is to reduce inflation, but the contents of the bill are maybe a lot more interesting than that. So the bill was originally supposed to contain $3.5 trillion of investment, but because of a lot of um, opposition within American politics, that got reduced down to $700 billion which equates to £579 billion. And the majority was so slim that the vice president had to cast the deciding vote, um, which kind of shows how much of a fight there was to get that over the line. Um, But yeah, the authors of the bill say that it it should cut the country's carbon emissions by 40% by 2030, which would be an amazing result. Wow, that is amazing. Um, and a little bit of citizen science. We love love a bit of citizen science um, to, to finish with. Yeah, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, isn't it? Rather than the, the yes. might of the US government. <laughs> um, so a citizen science survey found that 70% of branded litter can be traced to a dozen companies. Obviously, a lot of litter is not branded, so you can't trace it. But of the branded litter... of it could be traced to 12 companies and at the lead of that pack is Coca-Cola, PepsiCo and McDonald's and all of the brands that fall below them. So this survey was conducted by 4,000 citizen science volunteers across the UK and they were all walking across over 10,000 miles of coast, countryside, streets, rivers and green spaces over the last year, picking up litter and registering wow. it in a, in a massive database. And this report was carried out by Surface Against Sewage. So that's, I think, really interesting. And it's also obviously a good way to pressure decision makers into reducing litter. Yeah, really, really good. I mean, you know, encouraging that people are picking up litter, depressing that it's there in the first place, but very interesting that they've they've now got some 
quite useful data as a result of that. Tom, thanks very much indeed for those really interesting stories. Uh, Rob, um, is litter a problem in your area? I mean, it certainly is. Uh, I live just south of Cambridge and uh, um, you just notice every everywhere you go now, there's there's always, I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I go, go out there with a plastic bag sometimes when we do our dog walk and just pick up bottles and goodness knows what lying about. I'm the same, Sarah. It drives me crazy. And <laughs> yeah. I, I've got, I often, you know, have pockets full of stuff I just pick up and think, right, I'll put that in yep. the bin on a dog walk. So, yep, yeah, I'm the same. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, and there's one, there's one bit near near us. We have a a kind of little common uh, with a football post. It's great because the kids can play. There is a bin on the the common, and you know, you see things, sweet wrappers left eight feet away and you think really 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 you can't do that extra eight feet after playing football just to put your three proper away I know I know that's uh so um before <laughs> before I get completely you know on my hobby horse um Rob just uh, a couple of questions to finish I mean to pick up on Tom's point about energy bills has that I mean obviously the government has announced uh, some significant support now for for nuclear and nuclear research and nuclear industry I mean do you think that has uh, concentrated minds on what mixed nuclear has in the overall energy supply for the UK I, I think so and it's I think there are positives and negatives here there are things to, to, to look at and I think nuclear doesn't have a good track record when it comes to um, running over budget and over program with a large scale build. But I think as we increase demand, I, I think economies of scale can be can be achieved. So I think there are opportunities there as well. Uh, and, and also when it comes to these next generation of, of smaller and advanced modular reactors that I've mentioned, um, because they are modular, they, they, the, um, all the modeling suggests that they are much cheaper. They, they, because they're easier to build, they can be built within um, program as well. And there are also, I haven't mentioned this before, but there are opportunities to, to generate hydrogen. So, so uh, zero carbon hydrogen from, uh, from these nuclear uh, reactors as well. So wow. when, when, when you've got hydrogen together with nuclear, the, again, all the studies suggest that it can be very cost effective. So, so, so there's lots of potential there. Um, I, we always ask our uh, podcastees or podcaster no you're the podcastee aren't you I'm the podcaster I guess um <laughs> uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future Ooh, I, I think working in sustainability I think you have to be optimistic mm. I think you have to be because if you're trying to influence and engage with people if you're a pessimist you, you won't get anywhere you really have to to engage with people and get them to see the bigger picture so so that they might we be working in procurement they might think well how can i impact sustainability but you you try to take them out of that and say well actually your role you have got purchasing power you can drive sustainable procurement because of where you spend your money so it's about that that bigger picture but but i think also you've got to be professional so i think the one of the biggest piece of advice i can have i can give to a sustainability professional is to be professional and speak the, the language of business because if you're trying to get engagement and buy-in from executives and board level you, you've got to speak their language as well so yeah, you know just, yeah. talk, just talking about planting trees and saving water that's fine but you've got to put it into context do you know that's it's such a good point because um i think 
you know, there are members in all sectors of the UK economy, IMO members and people with a, in a wider sustainability brief outside the membership as well, who are finding that actually getting those proper conversations with the C-suite, it's a different language. It's around return on investment and long-term sustainability of the organisation. And there's a, there's a different narrative, almost a language you have to learn in order to land your points. There is, and I'm seeing a lot of um, sort of head of sustainability, chief sustainability officer um, roles. People are starting to, to get MBAs as well. So it's about, like you just mentioned, about translating what their ambitions are um, into that business language. So I think that's that's something to certainly to have a look at. So developing business skills. Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your your honesty and you know on what is a really fascinating and very very topical subject. Thank you ever so much. A pleasure. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Brilliant. Um, well, so have we. Thanks. Thanks ever so much, Rob. Rob Little, Group Sustainability Manager at Urenco. Please do join us next time uh, for the next time in the podcast. That's it uh, from us for now. And uh, see you next time. <laughs>